What's up, witches, and welcome to Witch Space. I'm Gemini. And I'm Scorpio. And today, we are going to be talking about the book, Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing, and Enchantment Through the Ages, by Sam Van Shake. Van Shake. That is how I would say it. Yeah, I'm not really sure how to say this person's last name, but the book, another new one, 2020. So it's really just, what, like a year and a couple of months old? It's not an old book at all. The interesting thing about this book is this was a suggestion by one of the listeners. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad they suggested this book because, one, I had no idea this book existed. Two, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. I agree. In a positive way. Positive way. Good book. So before we begin, just a, I don't have a lot about him, but I do want to say, and this is in the book, that um, he came across Buddhist magic. He didn't know anything about Buddhist magic, but he was working at a British library and he was basically cataloging and he found out information. And then he was like, hey, how come there's like no information about this? Boom. Now we have information like in one handy dandy book <laughs> that talks about other places that talk yes. about Buddhist magic. So really, I think if you're interested in Buddhist magic, this is a good place to start because you've got all his references, right? He mentions everything. There's a good job of really putting that all together. Yeah. And then you can jump off from them. Jump off from there. I will definitely preface this with saying you you should probably know a little bit about Buddhism first. Um, oh, yeah. I, I had to do a little bit of refreshing and like – Googling about it because my knowledge of Buddhism comes exclusively from the American education system, which is rough. <laughs> um, okay. It's not super authentic, I think, to Buddhism. So this is definitely not like an intro to Buddhism book. So much as I think it does a really fantastic job of discussing how magic plays a role in the historical development of religion. Yeah. Um, and he acknowledges exactly what you said, the idea that what we know about Buddhism is basically just what's been appropriated by the West. Yeah. So to really understand how things evolved or what's really going on in Buddhism, this gives you a little bit more, but I agree with you. You have to know something, even if it's the appropriated stuff, before you delve into this, because then it's going to be like, okay, what's going on? What is Buddhism? I thought it was just some, you know, fat guy sitting on a lotus. You know, lotus flower. So yeah, that sounds um. like America, all right. <laughs> um, I would. Can we dive right into that preface? Because I do think that that gives us some really good context. Okay. In, just in the end, he gives us this final note, and I think this is something that we we don't really ever see in any of the books that we're discussing, because we are typically discussing like practicing witchcraft books. But at the end of the preface. He straight up says, there is no longer a living lineage of transmission and instruction for these particular spells, which in the Buddhist context means that they are no longer alive as a practice. And then further goes on to say, I would not recommend that anyone actually try these spells. And if they did, I would not expect them to work as they were originally intended. This, after all, is a book about magic. And I think nice. that's a yep. really important distinction because one... He's already telling us, in Buddhist context, the context that these spells matter, these are not alive. These are not functional. This is a historical um, text. But also, to just outright say, don't do them. Don't do them. <laughs> right? We definitely can come to these books as modern practitioners and say, oh, well, you know, this is a historical thing. I want to try out the historical thing. But... Because of that Buddhist context, which he will further elaborate on and give deeper meaning to, doing these spells is not, it's not even relevant. They're not real spells in our current context. And to do them is a very clear appropriation. Yeah. So just for him to put that right at the beginning, I think was really important for us to start with. I also feel, and maybe I'm giving people too much credit, but I think as witches in 2022, there is more this idea of, I can do what I want, right? I can, in a good way, I'm saying, like, I can just feel my vibe, think of my intention, and try something. Yeah. I think there was a time when if people got their hands on a grim grimoire or, you know, a set of spells, they'd go, let me do the spell, the spell has worked. I feel like we're not those witches anymore that would do yeah. stuff like that. I think in a way we have gone back to our roots in that let's learn some stuff, let's trust ourselves, and let's try something. And I think 
it's a good place to be. And I think that's why maybe this book was never written before because maybe, you know, before somebody would have grabbed it and said, yeah. let me just steal these spells and let me do these. So I think that now we can read it again. I think to have a greater understanding of magic, magic throughout cultures, I don't know, it gives us a different perspective on what we're doing. Absolutely. And I think it's a fantastic read. Um, you know, it's funny, we always say how summer reading has gone bad for us. But I think this would have been a great summer reading book simply because it's not a doing book. It's not, you're not yeah. going to do this, read this, and then say, okay, the spell on page 57, let me go do it. That's not what you're doing. You yeah. really are just, but it's still a meaty book. I mean, I think that if you want to get a good understanding, yes. you're taking it slow. So, but I think a couple of days on the beach reading this would be a perfectly good book. But anyway, so first of all, I don't know if you realized you did the quote. I did, uh, well, I have a lot of quotes, surprisingly, <gasps> from this book. I am so excited about that. So I'm going to leave my quotes until I actually need one in particular. Can we go to chapter one? Can we talk about the introduction also? Oh, okay, yeah. I have, I have one more quote in here. Um, yeah. This book is an exploration of this lesser-known side of our Buddhist heritage, an exploration of how Buddhists have used what I will be calling magic, in quotes, to address the everyday needs of monks, nuns, and lay people. I heard that all, quote, too. As you should, because it's a good quote. It lays the groundwork, I think, first of all, for what the book is going to be. But it also gives us, I think, a context, because as we talk about the book, we're going to talk about sort of the perception of Buddhism, especially in the West. And so he's kind of calling out this idea that, you know, this is a lesser known side of Buddhism, but it is still inherently part of Buddhism to use this quote-unquote magic to help people. And I think also important that he's stressing monks, nuns, and lay people. It's about regular-ass people living their regular-ass lives. There's so much nuance in this sentence that he further explores that I almost feel like it just needs, it needs to be said. Like, that's, that's its own spell, that sentence. That is the mm. spell that the book then unravels. I think the important thing here, too, though, is when we say monks and nuns, everybody understands what a monk and a nun is. But then he says lay people, and you think, oh, just like us. Yeah, but nah. Yeah. Right? Because the lay people of the day were Buddhists. We're not talking about people who were non-Buddhists and yeah. decided to do this stuff. We're talking about Buddhists. So they weren't nuns or monks, but these are people that were practicing Buddhism every day. So I'm going to say that they're kind of like the priests and priestesses that we have today when people say, I am a priest of so-and-so, right? Particular goddess. Mm -hmm. um, we're still talking about people who had far more knowledge than most people have about Buddhism that are just getting in into it now. Yes. You know? Yes, and I think that leads right into his next section about the trouble with magic. And this, this really was very important and very powerful for me to read at the beginning of this book because mm -hmm. he talks about the idealized image of Buddhism as a rational religion, essentially free from superstition and ritual. And I think, first of all, this is like an accurate representation of Western perceptions of Buddhism. Right. But it also had me thinking about the way that I think modern society and I, modern Western society, because that's what I'm in, treats modern religions. Because I think that there is sort of this expectation that Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, these religions are almost non-magical. And like, so I joke all the time about how Catholicism is just magic. They just, it's just magical Christianity. But there's this perception that these modern religions are like above magic, that it's, it's all about this very rational religious concept um, and you, it's very clearly delineated between modern, quote-unquote, quote modern religions and the pagan religions that we have reconstructed or rebuilt or, you know, created whole cloth like Wicca. But Buddhism has been around forever. Yeah. Like, Buddhism is a very long history. Judaism and Christianity and Islam have incredibly long histories. And all of these modern religions have mystical and magical components that just kind of get wiped away in the modern context. 
And especially with Buddhism, it gets sort of put on this pedestal because in the West, we're like, oh, well, you know, the, the Asian cultures obviously understand this rational thought and this meditative ideology so much better than we did. We had the Crusades. Buddhism never had any Crusades. Yeah, absolutely. But the magic that was inherent in the development of Buddhism isn't bad. Just like the magic that was inherent in the development of Christianity and Judaism and Islam wasn't bad. And yeah. trying to rip that out and say, oh, these modern religions are all very rational. It's all about logic. That I almost feel like it defeats the purpose of being a religion. Wait, explain. What I mean defeats the purpose of being a religion? There is, in all religions, an aspect of faith that I think is necessary. Right. And to try and posit that any religion is inherently rational feels deeply oh. at odds with the idea of it being like faith. predominated by a faith. Yeah, and so just this like he's discussing the trouble with magic. The problem with magic is we see it in a modern context in a very specific way that wouldn't have been the same 500 1000 years ago, 2000 or 3000 years ago. And so we try to erase it when in reality even if we can't do the spells that are in this book, reading the spells from historical Buddhism puts into context this religion in a more human way. I see what you're saying. You know, I think for me when I was reading some of these, and we're going to talk about the different types of spells, because basically he says the main text for this is the Tibetan book of, of what? Well, Tibetan Buddhist book of spells. And he says, this book is a thousand years old, which actually is not that old. But for me, it kind of just, because he goes through the history of different cultures and their idea of magic with it. I feel when I read stuff like this, it brings us together as a magical community. Yeah. Because even if people are not practicing Buddhism this way, we get to see, especially when we're talking about reconstructionist re religions. Hey, you know what? We're, we're, we're doing a good job. Right? When you look back yeah. at what people did and you see what people are trying to do now, like, hey, we're like on the same path as these people. Like, we, we got this. Yes. So I think the more we see this from different cultures, whether it's our culture or not, the more we get to see, like, you know what? There was a lot of magic. And really what we're doing is just bringing it back. So even people yeah. who are reconstructing or, like, it's brand new, like Gerald Gardner, really isn't. He's just bringing yeah. something back. And that's kind of cool. I liked the discussion um, and the comparison of Judaism and Buddhism in this introduction as well, because I think this is something we mention often, that a lot of like the ceremonial magic was kind of lifted from Jewish mysticism. And so mm -hmm. to kind of see the connection of, okay, well, this was, this was how it developed in Judaism, and we, we see that already in our practices, now I can sort of see, okay, where maybe some mysticism from Buddhism might also have bled over. I think that's the next thing we're going to have to investigate, Jewish mysticism. Because it's coming up in a lot of the books Absolutely. that we read. And I think we have to tackle that. That'll be really fun. So should we go to chapter one? Absolutely. Because it's really what we're talking about already. It's called Magic Across Cultures. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh, why? But then, <laughs> yes. because I feel like how many times have we seen this? Except we haven't seen this at all. No. Because when he says across cultures, he's talking about Indic magic, Chinese magic, Mesopotamian magic. And by the time we got to Mesopotamian magic is when I went, yeah, I didn't know about any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't really go there. And yet, there's a lot of things that are similar and make me start thinking, what did Wicca appropriate? Yes. Is it just coincidence that, you know, oh, no, it looks like, you know, other people in Europe were doing the same thing that the Chinese were doing, or was it really appropriation? Were we just ripping cultures off? And then maybe that's why we don't see this in a lot of our other books, because I'm not going to really mention this, because we kind of took this, so, you know, I don't well, know. I think, I mean, I think we can, I think it's fair to say it's a little bit of both, but um, mm. if we think about Mesopotamian specifically, what comes mm. to mind for me is Lilith. Yes. Right. This idea of Lilith being, you know, oh, she's a Jewish demon. Oh, you know, she's the, the first wife of Adam, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, like, 
in Mesopotamian magic, there were demons called Lilitu mm-hmm. that were, you know, sort of seductresses or, or succubi or that sort of thing. And that ended up being morphed into this story of Lilith as the spurned first wife, which is not a historical text. It's a, a modern interpretation. I think a lot of the Eastern Mesopotamia over kind of gets glossed over when we look at Mm -hmm. modern practices because the West continues and has historically put the East on a pedestal, right? You know, oh, Confucius was so wise. Oh, you know, the Chinese had that beautiful, um, you know, bureaucratic test. It was all a meritocracy. We treat them as if they weren't real. Yeah. And so, of, of course, I didn't know about Indic magic, which is kind of ridiculous because we talk about, we, the witchcraft community, talk about chakras all the time. But there's yeah. so much more to Indic magic than just chakras. And a lot of the things that, you know, I feel like we're still doing spells on, charms for diseases, um, to secure harmony, for mm-hmm. prosperity. Uh, then we look at Mesopotamian magic. You know, they had most of the spells were protective in nature, but they also had, and I love this term, aggressive magic. Hexing. I also love that. Just say yeah. hexing, right? Um, I think I'm never going to say hexing again. I'm going to call it aggressive magic. You would. Right? But, and of course, to gain power over others in love, law, and trade. It's the same. They needed magic for the same exact reasons that we need magic. So their magic was... Now, some things were very different, and we can talk about those. But for the most part, it's just your day-to-day life. Yeah. Things that are going to come up, things that you need. And that's what we're seeing. Um, what else did he talk about? Oh, he, then he talked about the Greek magical paper. Yes. And there was a specific chanting to the goddess Persephone that he puts in here... And I wrote in my notes, Gemini, have you ever seen this chanting of the goddess? No. So this is um, specifically Hellenistic Greek. So this is when, like, Alexander the Great is doing his world conquering. It's where you see a lot of the overlap between Greek and Egyptian. And he mentions this in the text that, like, these papyri are actually found in Egypt. Um, So this is not something that I would work with personally. But a lot, a lot of things that went into ceremonial magic and then went into Wicca and then went into witchcraft at large came from this period of Greek and Egyptian sort of syncreticism. So you get Hermes Trimeg... Trismegistus... So you get Hermes Trismegistus, um, who is supposed to be Hermes, but also Toth. Um, you, You get this sort of syncreticism of the Egyptian gods with the Greek gods. And Egyptian like religion historically was a little bit more magical than Greek. So you're bringing in more of that magician aspect. Um, And when he talks about it in the book that like these probably might've been done by actual Egyptian magicians who spoke both languages. Um, The Hellenistic period is a super interesting period also because of Alexander the Great. You're also bringing in ideas like things from Indic magic Things from sort of pan-Asian, but like Russian-Mongolian vibe magic, Eastern Europe. So the Hellenistic period, historically, I think shows you just how aligned the idea of magic was for most people. Um, For lay people, because obviously the elites would need it for other things. But you're always going to need some kind of spell to make you not fight somebody or to make somebody lose a fight or to attract a lover or to find lost things. These would have been common. And I mean, we see them when we read about Indic and Chinese and Mesopotamia at the beginning of the chapter, but these would have been common in every place that Alexander conquered. And Alexander was not the kind of guy who was like snuffing out everybody's religion. They did a lot of commingling. So you see, okay, well... You do this spell, I do this spell. <laughs> Let's put your peanut butter in my chocolate. And that, I think, is the the most important part of this 
Greek papyri section because it's where you start seeing stuff that makes sense in a modern context. Right, you see this, this chant for the goddess. You see adding in magical words that don't mean anything. Right, that could very easily have come from hearing mantras from people in the Indus Valley and trying to replicate that without the context. It's, it's a good thing to have in the middle of this chapter because I think it contextualizes what he's really saying, which is that magic doesn't necessarily have a framework, but you can see the relationships. Um, he, he calls it a family likeness. You know, everything's not going to be the same, but they're similar, and you can see where they are related to each other. He then goes on to Jewish magic and, of course, European books of magic. Yes. And he addresses grimoires. So, again, I like it because it's bringing everybody together. It's giving yeah. everybody, especially if you are from one group, you get to see the relationship and the commonalities within other groups. So that's pretty cool. And then he defines magic. He gives us a working definition, which I really like, because it's very clear that, like, this is not the definition, but it's the one we're going to use. Okay, I have to go over these because some of the wording here is, is interesting to me. Yes. Okay. So he says, summoning or exercising various classes of minor super beings. Minor super beings? Minor supernatural beings. Right, but minor as opposed to... Who is minor? And, and, and this is, again, I'm thinking... I'm not thinking their way. I'm thinking like us. Like... God. Yes. When the, when the Greeks, you definitely know who's major and who's minor. They've made it, the Greeks themselves have made, made it very it clear. They've made it very clear, yes. Okay? But when I think about some of the Wiccan gods, like the idea of saying, I'm going to work with you because you're like a minor being. See, I don't think they're talking about gods. No, they're not. It's sort of like, um, remember, what? when was it that we talked about this? Where you were talking about like the elementals versus right. the elements. And the archangels and all that yes. stuff. Yeah. So it's yeah. like the minor suit. Like I would be less afraid to work with the element versus like I'm going to call an elemental. No, I know. But I just find it interesting. Just the term. The term of minor. What is it? Minor super beings. Minor supernatural a, beings. Okay, minor supernatural beings. Well, they're different. Um, they mean that means totally different things. Calling them super beings, I think you're <laughs> right. Definitely defeats the purpose of putting minor in front of it. But supernatural, but supernatural refers be- to a class of of being that is okay. not human. Right. I don't so know. A I brownie a- is minor. A brownie is just here to like fuck around in your house and like maybe help you find some stuff, versus like an archfey is major. I'm not fucking around with that. Here's your milk. Please leave me alone. Okay. But people still work with those people, with those, I mean, those entities. People still work with those entities. So reciting or writing down sounds from a sacred vocabulary. Yeah, that tracks. Using specific gestures and other physical movements. Yeah. Creating implements, ointments, and potions. That's it. I think it's important to note, though, that he really is being clear. This is not the only definition. These are the family resemblances. So it's like things that he is seeing across the cultures. Yes, and I think that he's he's right in these. But again, the idea, I'm going to go back to the first one. Yes and no, because not everybody is going to work. Not everybody's going to categorize supernatural beings. Not every culture is going to categorize supernatural beings. And that's the only thing that I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's what makes different cultures different when it comes to magic. Is their yes. relationship with how they're going to, I'm, I'm saying based on the other bullet points. The other bullet points all, all sound like things that could definitely go from different cultures. But when we get to the first one, I think that's just, I don't know. See, and Not I, everybody's going to summon right. or exercise. I think that you are correct. But I do think that this is coming in a very, like, anthropological context. And I think that that sentence does cover, like, I think that sentence covers the way that an anthropologist would look at semis. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, yeah. I know that culturally you wouldn't use that terminology, but if you are looking for the family resemblance between the magics of Puerto Rico and yeah. the Indus Valley, that would be the thing. An overlap. You know what I think my problem is? I think deep down inside, we have been reading so many books from witches that when we get to a book like this, you know, and I have to put my Margaret Murray hat on, yes. it's like hard. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, absolutely. Because I read this stuff and I'm like, what? And yeah, several times while reading, I had to tell myself, okay, this guy is not coming at this the way we would. And I think that I'm getting caught up in like little like semantics on things that were, was not his intention to begin with. You know what I mean? This This book is not a witch book. No, at all. In the way that I think a lot of our previous books this year have been. I think for me, this is the kind of book that I work better with because I am I am much more comfortable sort of zooming out. Whereas like when yeah. we do the books that are like, oh, these are like real spells, this is like a specific culture, then I'm looking at it and I'm being like, okay, well, I can't do anything with this. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and I shouldn't and, do anything with some of this. And that's why we work together here because yes. we're coming at things completely different. Then yeah. he talks specifically about Buddhist magic. Yes. I don't know if you want to go over those elements. Yes, I would. Let's really quickly, yes, go over the three things that he says about Buddhist magic. Because, again, I think that the way he gives context is so important in this book. So first, I will use the term in a Buddhist context to point to rituals entirely performed for this worldly ends, in which the ultimate aim of Buddhism is only very indirectly linked to the practice. First of all, yes, Buddhist context. I want this whole book to come from Buddhism. I don't want any other additions. Um, but I do think it's important that the first thing he mentions is that this Buddhist magic is kind of at odds with our assumption about Buddhism. That it's going to, these spells and rituals are going to be performed for stuff in this world, not for the eventual um, reaching of nirvana. Rituals in Buddhism are characterized by a swift and clear relationship between ritual and result. Yes. Which is Which nice. I, I think it's nice too. I think, But isn't that the whole point of doing a ritual, doing a spell? We want the result. Yeah. I do think there's so, kind of an expectation in modern witchcraft that like, that's not a thing anymore. That, like, there isn't going to be a super... Yeah, it's almost sort of like you do the spell and then it's like, you have to wait and see. And if you don't see any results, then maybe you did it wrong or maybe blah. And it's like... Or maybe that's your answer. Yeah. Maybe that's... Yeah. So it it feels like they're really um, pragmatic, no? Yes. Just, you know, here's the thing. Just like if I take this pen and I scribble the word dog on there, I'm going to see it. See, I did it. I did it and there's the word and that's the end of it. It's almost like you can't argue against this magic. And I like that because I did it. You're going to see the result right away. So shut up. You know, it's going to happen. Yes. (laughs) And third, spells. They're about healing, protecting, divining, um, enchanting, cursing, summoning, invisible. Okay, and we have to talk about this. Invisibility, finding treasure, and clairvoyance. Invisibility yes. comes up quite a bit. I get it. I wish I could be invisible. I know there are people who still do invisibility spells. So, But I don't really hear people talking about it. Yeah. So to see that he was talking about it, I was as soon as I saw it the first time in the book, I went, that's right. Mm-hmm. Invisibility spells. What happened to those? And I'm serious when I say, and I asked somebody, because, you know, the first time someone said to me, I do invisibility spells. I just looked at them like, mm-hmm. I was like, are you invisible right now? I remember I said something snarky like that. Like, so are you invisible right now? Because I can see you. <laughs> and they were like, no, it's not. Don't be stupid. It's not like the invisible man. It's not science fiction. It's more of a spell like, he goes, some days I'd go to work. I did not want to be bothered. Yeah. So I do the invisibility spell. I go to work. And guess what? Nobody came to my cubicle. Nobody bothered me that day. I was able to get my work done and I went home. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And I haven't really heard that term again until we got to this book. So it was something that piqued my interest. I do that, but I have never called it invisibility spells. Oh, what do you call it? I, I, what do I call it? I don't really even call it anything. It's sort of, sort of part of like warding or like protection for me. It's like, okay. I do not want to be perceived. So it's just sort of like a little extra thing that I add on sometimes where it's like, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Don't interact with me. You don't see me. I'm not real. But I never thought about it as like, oh, yeah, that's an invisibility spell. That's what you're doing. Okay, so when I ground and center in the morning, I do a cloaking. Okay, I cloaking spell. Yeah. Um, but it's not so people, I mean, I'm a teacher. I hope you see me. Because if not, you're getting written up. <laughs> not that drastic. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you got to yes. see me. I you want to you to, to hear class. me. <laughs> yeah. You have to come to school. Um, but it's really meant, he talks about this world. It's not even meant for this world when I do it. I mean, for anything else, it might want to come at me. And it could be somebody in this world who just hates me, wants to do put a little, you know, bad mm-hmm. juju on me. It's to block them. You don't see me. I am not on your radar. I am nobody to you. If you think about me, all of a sudden you're thinking about puppies or something else because you've forgotten about me entirely. Like, that's what I do it for. I don't do it, like, to come into work and be like, okay, nobody bother me. Nobody call me. Nobody look at me. It's really just anybody on a spiritual realm. And they could be a person here. I'm not saying just spirits out there. Somebody here who's just kind of pissed at me. You know what? Today, you don't even see me. That's what my, my cloaking is for. Only. I do it all. No, I do it like specifically for. So, part of where I work overlaps with like the powers that be, and mm-hmm. so there are days where I wake up and I'm like, I do not want to deal with that. So you don't see me. I'm not here today. <laughs> or like, you know, if I have a conflict with somebody, nope, nope, Gemini's not around. You don't see her. You're busy. You can't talk to her. You can't. She's invisible. I should try to do that. You know how we come back at the beginning of the the year. I try not to like. I don't want to be noticed by. Yes, the, I want to be big under the radar. Ever. Yeah, I just want to do my job. I want to be noticed. And you know, the thing is, they're super nice to me too. Like, it's not like I have had. No, it's yeah. It's ever, never like a bad thing. I just don't never. want to be perceived. Yeah, but this one time where I was just like, you know, first one of the first days back at work before the kids come in, I'm just trying to get my groove, trying to get my room ready, and I hear one of the higher-ups go, hey, is that Scorpio? And I was like, oh, my God, we have to interact. And this, the thing <laughs> is, the person is honestly the sweetest person on the planet. Yeah. Um, and I have worked with this person for years in different capacities, so I can tell you honestly, love this guy. But there was something about, you know, them being who they are now and going, is that Scorpio? I mean, going, no, you don't see me. You don't see me. <laughs> and you know what the problem is? Is I think of invisibility spells. I'm such a schmuck. I think of invisibility spells in the context of like Lord of the Rings. You know, like, oh, I'm going to put on the ring and I'm going to go be completely invisible and I can like sneak into places and I can find stuff and I can steal the Silmaril from Smaug. Spoilers. Um, but like, I'm never using an invisibility spell to do I can't remember a time where I've used an invisibility spell to do something bad. I'm using it because maybe I'm having like an anxious day or I'm having a really busy day and I don't want to be interrupted or I'm just not vibing and I just want my energy to just be like calm and not interrupted. I (laughs) at no point am I using an invisibility spell because I'm like I am in trouble or I need to steal something or I need like it's just I just don't want to be perceived. So I wouldn't think about it as an invisibility spell because I immediately associate invisibility with, like, theft. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I didn't think of that, but you're right. No, sometimes you just want to you just want to do your thing. Yeah. I don't know why um, some people feel like us, like, visibility is bad. Like, I don't know. And it's so funny because I can't tell you how many times I have said things like, you know what? I just want to blend in to the wall. I don't want anybody to notice me at work. And then, like, the students will come up with an idea. And it's like, we're doing assemblies for the entire building. Do you know what I mean? Or now all of a sudden, Writers Club is going to be doing slams everywhere around the building. And everyone's going to see my students. Like, I'm such a jerk because I say that. And then, like, 
boom, there I am in front of everybody's I face. I was literally having a conversation about this with somebody last night. It's about your Leo placement in your chart. So, like, you okay. are a Leo rising. So, for you, you only want to be perceived when you're, like, when your identity is creating something valuable or, like, you're being perceived in a really authentic way. So like, of course you're doing these assemblies because they're meaningful to you. Of course you're doing the slams because they mean something really powerful to you. My Leo placements are Venus and Mars. So I only wanna be perceived by the people that I love and care about or in a successful competition. Oof. I wanna win something or I don't wanna be seen at all. Wow, that's complicated. It's, it is, it, it is super complicated, yes. Yeah. Wow. And both of those placements are in the seventh house, which is, for those of you who don't know about astrology, seventh house is like partnerships. Um, you're, you're like long-term partner, but also business partnerships and that sort of stuff. So it's very much like, I'm, I'm almost, my Leo placements are almost like, I want to put other people on a pedestal and then be perceived for having helped that person. Okay. Like Which the is mastermind. why we work great because you're the the Leo rising, so you're like I'm. I can you know I can schmooze. I can be the face, and then I you can come and be like, oh, thank you, Gemini, for editing the podcast. And I'm like, yes, perfect. You saw that I did something good, and we're good. But I don't need anybody else to see that. Except I do tell everybody all the things you do, and I'm like, you know, this was Gemini's idea, or you know, Gemini did this. So <laughs> you know, I do because you know, yeah. All right. I don't know where we were to even I know, jump back I got, into I got this book. Very distracted. Oh, I actually think we're just um, moving right into but this chapter was good. two. But that was really good, though. Magic medicine and the spread of Buddhism. Yes, it's so cool to to really focus on magic and medicine because that really does show the sort of historical development going from magic as this like spiritual mysticism into medicine which then gets co-opted by science and then we treat it as this rational thing when in reality for so much of human history medicine was a shit show it was a guessing game it was let's put some things together and see what happens so this history i think one i mean cool is cool you should read it but two really ties into this idea that he starts with at the beginning that we are looking at buddhism wrong in the west yeah you know we talk about language a lot you know, the right words when we're doing rituals. And I love that he goes into how Sanskrit, like the language is embedded. Yes. Right. In, in all of Buddhist magical literature. It's like they have their own magical language. And if anybody's ever seen Sanskrit written, it's really beautiful, I yes. think. And when you think about what kind of magical language there could be out there, I don't know. I just, I think the way it's written is, is lovely. It's just kind of a nice idea of like having a whole magical language. Yeah. And something that I didn't really associate with, um, well, again, what did I know about Buddhist magic? Nothing. So why Nothing. would I even associate anything with anything else? Yeah. I think there's also that tie-in when we're looking at sort of how cultures did the same thing differently. Sanskrit is sort of like the Latin of the East. Yeah. Right, we in the West sort of took Latin and created Latin to be our now mystical dead language. You know, when you read Harry Potter, all the spells are in Latin. So it's the same sort of, it's the family resemblance, right? They're not the same in practice, but they, you can see where this sort of humanity exists in the creation on both sides. Yeah. He also talks about the sources of magic in Buddhist scripture. In yes. Here. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that. I think that some of these chapters, like chapter three, like chapter four especially, are kind of contextual and kind of historical. And there's something that I think like each of us sort of needs to read on our own because I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything in these two chapters where I'm like, I really need to share this on the podcast to the listeners Mm. in like a quote but I really valued reading them. I think mm-hmm. that, again, the context in this book is, it's a lot to get in the short number of pages that he's given us. But also, if I, I took this book very much in the context of two things. One, the West is wrong about Buddhism. And two, magic is 
a global family. And chapter three and chapter four really just cement that. This idea that like here is some really important context for Buddhism. And here is some magic that should seem familiar to you even if it's not something you're doing. He has a whole section on like Buddhist magic and violence, which I think in the West we would look at and say, Buddhists wouldn't do anything violent. Right. But like humans do violence. Just because someone is Buddhist doesn't mean they're not going to do violence. So this this is very much one of those things where like I don't I don't have a ton quote wise to share, mm-hmm. but especially if you're not Buddhist, these these sort of later chapters really give you context to be like, oh, this is where I was assuming about Buddhism and I was wrong. And this is where humanity overlaps, regardless of what culture we're talking about. Yeah, I agree. So then that would bring us to chapter five. Yes. And I think this is the chapter that I was most excited to get into. Because it's the actual Tibetan book of spells. Right. And I get that we had to read everything else, but sometimes I am like a child. Sometimes I'm like, ooh, we're going to talk about this, and then Mm -hmm. the next chapter comes, and the next chapter comes, and I'm going, where are we going to get to the book of spells? Even though I'm not doing the spells, but still, after reading the history of things, you're like, all right, I want to see what you got. What's going on? So, of course, he has nine different sections, and we can talk about the sections. So the first one is healing mind and body. Which, like, of course, this would be the first section if we're talking about spells that people do for this world. Right. Like, yeah, that's the thing that people want the most, to be healthy. Yeah. I think what surprised me was that it starts with three rituals for curing insanity and illness. But, I mean, it doesn't surprise me in that we did not understand mental illness for so long. Right. So no one, there wasn't a culture who really understood it. So it was about insanity, period. That was that was a diagnosis. Yeah. Right. Um, And I guess part of me, you know what it is? I think as a Western person, I have put Buddhism on a pedestal. Yeah. So I feel like they understand more. So to see that they had like spells to try to cure insanity, period. I felt like a letdown. I felt kind of sad that they weren't a little bit more evolved. But at the same time what year are we talking about you know yeah nobody knew anything about anything so yeah no i agree with you i think it was (laughs) he really set this book up so well i love when people do this when they set up books like in a really cohesive manner because yeah reading those three rituals is like oh here's a method for a ritual for people who are possessed by a powerful dragon what but like yes of course people thought that why 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 do white people but why do western people look at buddhism and just assume well everything has always been perfect and they're just perfectly logical and rational and they just meditate away all of their feelings like why why do we never take a step back and go huh that's pretty like bullshit okay but you know what now i'm gonna step back and i'm gonna say but it makes sense that you would be possessed by a powerful dragon because when you think about spirits and when you think about, um, we don't have to use the word demon. We don't have to say that. But let's go back to the elementals and what forms do they take? Yeah. Right? And when we talk about deity in different cultures, what forms do they take? Zeus took any form he wanted. So <laughs> the idea of being yes. possessed by, yeah, to me, to me that was actually really rational because I don't know what form they're seeing. Yeah. Right? It doesn't mean this person was a dragon or this entity was a dragon. But to somebody who's being possessed, what did it feel like? Yeah. It might have felt like they were being run over by a truck. Oh, P.S. There were no trucks. Um, possessed by a dragon. Yeah. And now everybody understands. Right? That's the reference everyone's going to get. Yeah. So, you know, to me, I, that, that made a lot of sense. Do we go on to the next one? I think we do. I don't know if I can pronounce it. Brukti? That's how we're going to say it, because I also can't pronounce it. Yeah, so we apologize in advance. Um, it's B-H-R-U-K-T-I cycle. But there's like the Brukti there's cycle. dots and, and yeah. lines over so, things. Yeah, we're not really sure, so apologies. <laughs> um, so it's basically focusing on the deity 
of that name yes. that we cannot pronounce. This is, I thought this was great because it had a disclosure. Even though he said, hey guys, don't perform these spells. He goes in and says, um, you need prior training for these specifically. Yeah. So I guess knowing his audience, that somebody out there is going to say, yeah, I'm going to try some. So he's letting you know, this is not something you should do. Um, this is all about controlling demons. Which, yeah, is a lot. And you shouldn't do that if you're not prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah, to summon and tame dangerous wild animals. Like, please don't try this at home, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but then it keeps going with the next one. The Garuda cycle. Devoted to the bird deity Garuda. This one is more dealing with divination and specifically scrying. Mm-hmm. But then they say they also had remedies against poison. Which is very interesting. Is that because of the deity or is that because poison and divination were related to each other? Which, again, now we start thinking about the book that we did on the poison path that we yeah. read. Right? Is this about... And, you know, we always wonder. I mean, I always wondered when I hear this is poisonous. You think, who was the first person who took this, did whatever, smoked it, ate it, mm -hmm. and died? And then somebody else went, oh, crap, that's poisonous. Like, how long did it take yep. before people realized this thing was poisoning people? So remedy against poison sounds like, you know, if we're talking about God knows when, back when, people were still being maybe poisoned without even realizing what they were doing. So there was a lot. It was a problem. Just the way a lot of us and thought quicksand would be a problem when we got older. Apparently poisoning was a problem, think, maybe. Did we talk about this already? What? Why are we, were we so afraid of quicksand? I don't know. It terrified me. What was me. it about the 80s that, like, everybody was going to be quicksanded? It was in cartoons. It was in TV shows. Everybody it got, It was in yeah. movies? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was going to be and a like, thing. I thought once in my life. not even how real quicksand life, works. I don't, I don't know how it works. All I know is that I really thought that as an adult, I was going to have to face this at some point. I love that we're having the same realization, though, and please, like, listeners, reach out to us if you were also afraid of this, because it feels incredibly stupid in 2022 to be like, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of quicksand. But I was. I was desperately afraid of quicksand. I didn't want to – I had, like, a whole prep plan of, like, what do you have to do to get out of quicksand, like, efficiently so you don't die? Because I really okay, thought so that that was happening. I thought you just had to have very slow movements and walk yes. without moving. Like, not moving your body, just your legs slowly. You move, right? That's not how you get out? That is, I believe, how you get out. I was always like, okay. um, I need to make sure that I'm with other people and that we have rope on us. I was okay. like disaster prepping for quicksand. So you said that quicksand isn't even like what we think it is. Okay, so for me, my main like vision of quicksand is from The Princess mm -hmm. Bride, um, which they don't even call quicksand. They call it lightning sand, yeah. which like immediately sucks you down, which is not a real thing. Um, oh, no, it's slow, right? And it's slow enough that, like, you you can get out of it as long as you don't panic. Um, it's not – even, like, in the movies, it seems faster than it is. But I was fully emotionally prepared that I was going to go down and be up to my neck in, like, 30 seconds. Not even. 10 seconds. And have to figure out a way to get out of quicksand. I don't know why they did that to us. I don't know who was the first person who said, oh, you know what? Let's put this in there. I want to say I saw it in Scooby-Doo. But I'm not 100% pop. I know I saw it in cartoons growing up. Yes, absolutely. Because, probably because it was funny. And you can't show people dying in cartoons. That's true. And they didn't die. I don't think anybody died. Did anybody die in the cartoons? I think people got out. So it was know. scary, but it wasn't, you know, nobody died. Um, yeah, but you knew the possibility was there. But anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thing that I think is interesting, I know nothing about Garuda, but I do know about birds. Okay. <laughs> Lots of birds. <laughs> I'm a science person. Lots of birds eat, like, poisonous berries and then poop out the seeds, and that helps the, the stuff to transmit. So, like, there are lots of things that birds can eat oh. that maybe other organisms can't. Um, there's a part of me that thinks birds can't taste spicy. Which I cannot confirm or deny, but I will Google uh, and let everybody know in a later update. But like cayenne peppers and that sort of thing, that spiciness existed so that mammals wouldn't eat them. And humans were like, oh my god, you know what's so great? Spicy shit. So it would be really interesting if Garuda is associated with poisons, this Garuda cycle, because birds can eat certain things that humans can't. 
Oh, wow. That is interesting. Not sure what this has to do with scrying. Like, why scrying is tied into this. I think birds get associated with divination because of, like, their association with the sky and with, like, that ethereal plane and being able to transmit messages and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm just saying, like, we have poison and we have scrying in this in this one section. It's a vibe. I, I like it. I'm good yeah. for it. You can pronounce the fourth one. <laughs> we can't pronounce shit in this book is what I'm realizing. Avaloki Tesvara cycle. So, yeah, sounds good. Yes. I'm incredibly white. No, I don't think, yeah. Eye medicine. <laughs> that's what yes. that's all about. Um, and he talks about in each of these sections, like, they're different places in Asia. Yes. Because we do have to also remember that, like, Buddhism spread throughout Asia in right. a very similar way to the way Christianity spread throughout Europe. There are different Buddhisms in China and in Tibet and in India they're not all exactly the same religion. I was going to say something else. Well, you know, we're going over these, but of course in these, he is explaining it. Then he has the section where it says translation, where he's telling you at this point, it's not him writing. He is translating the actual thing. So you get to see it for yourself. So that's really important. Number five is controlling the weather. I have a story about controlling the weather. Yes, tell me. So there are all these people. I've known two people who say they're weather witches. And um, I remember this one night, it was Christmas Eve, and it was a full moon. It was not that long ago. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's, it's about seven years ago or something like that. And as a group, a group of us were going to do something on Christmas Eve. It was a positive thing. We weren't, like, hexing yeah. anybody. But it was, like, the full moon. And I remember I went out there, and it was super cloudy. And I went, oh, my God, at midnight. And I said, oh, man. So I was like, forget it. I went out at 10 o'clock. I'm like, it's going to be too cloudy at midnight. I said, you know what? Let me go out at midnight. So I went out and it was like, there was like a hole in the sky where I could see the moon. And I said, this is awesome. I love this. So I did my ritual or whatever. And then I talked to my friends and I'm like, well, did you do it? And one of them goes, it was so hard, but I like kept the moon open for everybody. Right. This is before other people showed up. The people were like, it was so cloudy. I couldn't do anything. So he was taking credit because apparently to, for some of us, because we didn't all live on the same block, some of us could see the moon. But obviously, you know, mm-hmm. so when he said that, I just turned around and was like, oh, so it was just a couple of people you opened up the sky for. Um, anyway, that's just my little bit. Like, I've never met a witch and I would love to meet a witch that can actually control the weather because I feel like everyone that I've met who says they can, can't. So I love I love that we're going here. Okay. I think weather magic is inherently folk magic. Mm, I think the only people that I trust to actually be weather witches Mm -hmm. are like Appalachian grandmothers, right? Or like farmers. Like weather magic is not about – it's not ceremonial. It's not about um, magic in the way that Wicca does it. And so when, when people who are very ceremonial or very Wiccan are like, oh, yeah, I'm a weather witch, I'm like, I don't believe you. <laughs> but when somebody comes out and is like, yeah, sometimes I'll sing the wind or, you know, I can call some thunder sometimes, I'm like, yes, you can. I believe you. That's what um, you're saying, yeah. And I believe it because of the school tradition of flushing ice cubes down the toilet when you want to Here we go day. again with the flushing ice cubes on the... Mm, okay. I, I truly, I think weather magic only works as a folk tradition. Okay. So I think... I can believe that, yeah. When enough people are participating in a superstition, which is just the way we describe magic in a modern society where we don't want to admit magic exists, when enough people are participating in that superstition, it works. The energy becomes enough. Which is why I always say, if you guys, if you want a snow day, you got to flush some ice cubes down the toilet. Right? Because eventually, we hit a critical mass where we have done the weather spell together. And it's like, yeah, okay, here you go. But I couldn't, me, myself, even if I was the strongest witch in the world, even if I was Lori Cabot, even if I was Lori fucking Cabot, I don't think I could make a snow day happen. It's not, weather is too big for one witch to do it. 
Right. You know? No, that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Number six, we get to oh, yeah. clairvoyance, fortune-telling. <laughs> clairvoyance, fortune-telling, and invisibility. Um, and it contains five spells for personal power and accomplishments, including flying, becoming invisible, summoning demons, influencing humans, and practicing, clair practicing clairvoyance. Um, I would love to fly. Okay, but here's the thing. The first two spells that they talk about you have to get the tears of a recently deceased person. Or you have to pull out the tongue of a child born of incest who died before speaking. So, I feel like this part of the book is where we got dark. A little bit. I mean, a child of incest, first of all, whoo, like, I guess maybe back then... Everybody mm -hmm. married everybody, so maybe it wasn't that hard to find a child of incest. Um, but then to pull out their this child before they could speak. So we're talking about a child who is, what, several months old? Unless the whole point of these spells is that they should not work. Uh, the whole point of these spells is you should leave the deceased alone. I, I don't know. That just seems like the worst kind of bad juju. I don't know. It surprised me. And again, it surprised me because I am from the West. And we assume. And everything is good and everything is beautiful. But that that did shock me, not going to lie. Yeah. That was kind of like where I went, wait, what did I just read? What am I looking at? Like, it just. I would be very interested in looking at, on a more global scale, what spells were written with the with the assumption that they would never be performed. Why would somebody write a spell like that? You, I don't know what person sits down and goes, yes, not only will you be able to find a child born of incest who died before they first spoke and get their tongue, but then you have to put it inside of a charm box with gold, silver, or copper. Then you have to have a special seal. You have to do a bunch of, you have to say a bunch of things over it. Then you have to wait, you have to dry it, you have to grind it, you have to say some more words. Then at dawn, you have to place it in Chinese beer. And then only if it dissolves can you continue doing X, Y, and Z. Like, and then, and then the thing that you get is if you anoint in the middle of your forehead, it will cause someone important to become agreeable to you. Like that, that reads like a spell that somebody wrote knowing that maybe one person in the world would ever complete it. Okay, and I'm going to tell you, I think the opposite. Let me tell you why. We have a very different relationship with death and bodies than other cultures do, right? A body is a body. Once the person has left, that's a meat sack. It's not even a person. Oh, I, that's not even a thing that I'm arguing how how easy is it to find a child of incest that died before speaking? I think that's probably a lot easier in some cultures in certain eras than now. I mean, there's a whole joke. We, the United States jokes incest. Alabama, I, yeah, you're right. Yes, there you go. We joke all the time people marrying their cousins. Now, where does that joke come from? It's quite possible that at some point in history, that was a thing. So I'm going to say that at some point in history, every culture had incest. They Okay, they did. They did. I'm not saying they didn't. But biologically, that percentage really wasn't that high unless you were looking at, like, rich people. And, like, what king is going to purposefully fuck his sister and then kill his child to take their tongue to just make some other higher-up guy agreeable to him? Like, at that point, you've got all the power. What do you need that for? Okay, I don't think that's how it worked. But again, could I see people doing it? Yes. It, history is filled with horrific things that people have done. So, I just feel like some of these spells have only been done a couple of times. You know, It's possible, but I think not. I think these spells, they're in this book because they're good and people have used them. And, ew. Anyway, we can move on. We don't have to we keep should. going on. We should move on. Number seven. 
curing diseases in animals, basically your livestock. And this makes a lot of sense because it wasn't so much about pets as you have to survive. So if your livestock kicks it, well, there you go. You're not eating. Yeah. And then, of course, the next one being pregnancy rituals also makes a ton of sense because you need to have children to continue taking care of your livestock. And honestly, when I read that, I thought these are still things that are very not this ritual. But out of all the things, this is the one that I could see still people still wanting to do. I think we still do rituals like this. People who want to get pregnant and people who want to make sure that their pregnancies go well. Why not? See, we have nice spells in here, not just ripping out the tongues of It doesn't matter. Just don't do any of them. Don't do any of them. Don't do Number nine, final spells and prayers. So, you know, it's basically spells for... The magic user, I'm not going to say which because they don't say which, magic user, um, what they might need for their own study and for their own Buddhist practice. Things like, you know, you want to have a sharp mind and make sure your eyesight is good because you want to be able to keep reading. Um, To make a journey quicker. Maybe you're studying something that's giving you a hard time and you want it to go by quicker. You want to get this enlightenment of whatever it is faster. Uh, To protect the magician when they're working with sick people, we mentioned that some of these spells were to heal the sick. Well, you know, you can't heal that many people if you heal the first one and you contract whatever it is they had. So yeah. you've got a spell to really help protect. And I think these are still things that are valuable that I could see magicians, again, not these spells, but the, there are spells that we write today that would help for these things as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then um, I did mark something at the end. It's actually in the book. At the end, he has an afterword, which is rare, I think, in books. I think Today. we I think we see them more often in the books that have much more historical information because I think we saw one in the Caridwin book, but true. I don't think we've seen them in like the witchcraft books. So he says, we might want to say that there is no place for magic in modern Buddhism. But we should also be clear that for the vast majority of practitioners, divination, amulets, and the world of spirits are still very much part of their experience of being Buddhist. So I think it depends on where you're from. I think it depends on what strand of Buddhism you are practicing. Absolutely. And I think it's an, it's an important thing to say so we don't look at this as some old relic, which it is. He's not saying we should practice it now, but that... There are still people who have evolved past maybe this book and are doing different types of magic. And, of course, he has notes in the back of the book as well. And The back of that book is ridiculous. It's fantastic. Like, so thorough. Gives yeah. you his notes, gives you citations, gives you a key, gives you a glossary. I mean, just, it's a good-ass book. It's a good-ass book. So, thank you. When we ask people, hey, you know, if you have a book you want to recommend, they did not let us down. Yeah. This book was really good. Yeah, I encourage people, you're not going to necessarily learn a new trick or get a new spell. But again, if we're looking at being a community, I think the more we read about different cultures and different types of magic, you know, I I almost feel it also validates us. When, When we're having that bad day and we're saying... Oh, you know, people and witches and how they feel about us or not feel about us. We've always existed from every corner of the world. We've existed. We've been here and we're all just doing our thing. And a lot of times it's the exact same things for the exact same reasons. So great book for sure. Another win. No misses. No misses this year. I know. Knock on wood. Thank you so much for being amazing listeners, for reaching out, for answering our questions, for suggesting books to us. Keep doing it. We love it, and we love being able to showcase books that you want to see us talk about. You can hit us up on Instagram at witchspaceco or at Gmail, witchspaceco at gmail.com. Thank you to Kano and Moore for our intro and outro music that we are obsessed with. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us. 